Yeah. So, so look, Nils, um, you know, heads up on this. There's um, basically we don't have any structure um, or <laughs> or any uh, any real agenda on this. Um, I, you know, I thought it'd be I've, I've been intending to have you on for a while because I just always enjoy talking to you. Um, <clears throat> but uh, basically, you know, Shadi's piece came out. I, you know, he's been getting a lot of sort of, um, uh, uh, I guess, shade thrown at him on this. Right. Um, and uh, incidentally, we're I'm already recording and we'll just like cut in at some point because we have no like intro or anything like that. And don't worry about it. Like it, it, it's all fine. But all basically, right. um, you know, Shadi's been getting all sorts of shade thrown at him about that. So, you know, I, I'd like to to. You know, things that interest me that I think you have a lot to, to say about, but I think it's something that both Shadi and I have been sort of struggling with is, you know, I mean, it's the question of, I think, legitimacy. Uh, yeah. What is legit? What is legitimacy? What is state legitimacy? Um, what is uh, um, uh, basically, I think, you know, the purpose of 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 uh, democratic societies, social change? How does that work? I don't know, Shadi. It's also stuff. What's on your mind? Uh, you know. Anything anything you well, want to throw out there? <laughs> we can just talk about how hard my week has been <laughs> and just like and make me feel better. No, I'm kind of joking. Um, it has been interesting. I mean, that's for sure. Um, but Demir, you know, I was actually looking um, at our notes from last week's episode because I'm starting a new page mm-hmm. as I jot things down. And uh, maybe just as like a um, so I have progress in big letters but it doesn't seem like that was resolved. So it just was left there as the last thing that I wrote in big letters. The I just question wanted of you progress? to know that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, so, I, so anyway. But also, but I, yeah. I mean, uh, so the fact that we do a cold open, Nils, make, actually makes it a little bit challenging for us to, to do our sort of like um, intro pitch. We should probably do that, Demir, right? Sure. Because um, we have to be more serious about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and do In it. In this very natural, unplanned way. Yeah. But just to give a heads up to to our dear listeners, because we care about you and we just want you to be aware of of sort of the game plan. But I think that after after this episode with Nils, we'll do a special members only episode of just me and Demir. So if you wanna catch that second part you should go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe for $5 a month, and you should do that. You know, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really glad you're our chief marketing officer, Shadi. You do a great job at this. Am uh, I getting better? Yeah, definitely. Nils, are you, are you, are you, are you sold? I'm signing up as soon as we're done with this. <laughs> anyway, uh, also, the other challenge, Nils, is actually introducing our guests like this because we, we, we just sort of try and uh, – not be structured, like I said. Anyway, Nils Gilman's on the line with us here, uh, the Vice President of Programs uh, at the Bergruen Institute, and you're Deputy Editor at Noema Magazine as well, which launched this year, Nils, or last year? When was that? This year in June. This year in June. How's that going? Well, we've been pretty happy with the amount of uh, reception and uh, distribution that the initial issue and the ongoing pieces that are coming out. We're putting out about two uh, two articles a week. Mm. It's a it's a long form magazine, um, so you know, which we're living kind of a golden age of long form journalism and commentary. And I guess this is our contribution to it. Um, so we're trying to, you know, the institute has had a has operated as sort of the intersection of kind of policy pretty wonky policy stuff on the one hand and philosophy and sort of long-term structural futures thinking 
at the, the confluence of those three intersections. And I think the pieces we're trying to push out through Noema, you know, reflect that confluence. Um, we felt like there was a little bit of a gap in the marketplace for that, and hopefully people will find some of the articles that we're publishing there interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually on the page right now because uh, I'm in front of my laptop, and it looks really impressive. So I, you know, I, we'll, we'll include the link in our show notes, but I can already tell there's some great articles here. The Cowardice of Today's Liberalism is one title. Boris Johnson is Losing the Union. And, oh, and um, an article by Shashi Tharoor, the, the famous um, Indian politician, um, so yeah, this seems like a really good lineup. So yeah, thanks, Nils. Um, you know, I don't know so many ways to spin this out in in uh, you know today's moment. Like I said earlier, you know, Shadi's had a rough week with his piece, and again, we we went up at it a little bit, uh, you know, on Twitter. I maybe you know of all the things you've you've written for the American interests uh, for for many years, and I've known you, and we we've talked about all sorts of things. I, I'm I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was. Two or three months ago, certainly in the uh, in the in the uh, throes of COVID, um, you and I had an exchange, and we were talking about. Um, I, I think it somehow ended up talk. We talk, ended up talking about global governance, and you said that you had been thinking for a while about perhaps at some point writing a piece about you know what the you know <laughs> what what that might look like. Bear with me, why I'm I'm getting at this. You then you then. Um, uh, uh, nudged me to go look at a, a review you did of Sam Moyne's book uh, in the LA Review of Books and said that, you know, that had some sort of um, embryonic thinking about, you know, the next steps. And again, we'll put, I think, link to that piece in the show notes as well, because I think it, it's it's important, but it, it got me thinking about how to sort of frame some of the questions I have for you today. Um, <clears throat> in that piece, uh, you're, you're following Sam Moyne, who I think you went to grad school with, is that right? Yep, yeah. we, were, we were colleagues in graduate school, that's right. Um, and you, you're, you're talking about basically his, his last two books about you know, the, the emergence of human rights, um, and embedded in that is a discussion about, well, you know, I, I think a legitimating principle in democratic societies in, in, uh, in, in the 20th century, right? Um, that, uh, and it's something that I think you've, you've revisited in the writings you've done for the American interest. It's it's uh, a certain kind of sense of egalitarianism. Which, is that a fair thing to say, that that's sort of a 20th century uh, driving force of, of even of, of sort of the, the, the concept of modernization up through maybe the Reagan-Thatcher revolution? Well, first of all, I, I love coming on a show and being asked about the things I haven't written yet as opposed to things I've already written. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that means I can really get myself in trouble because if I, if I had it all worked out in my head, I already would have written it. Well, but so I'll, I'll, let, let me, let me, let me but just... I'll, but I'll, but I'll yeah. try to answer the question okay. you asked it anyways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, I think that in... I'm, I'm persuaded by an argument that various people have made in various ways. Um, I'm thinking here, for example, of the historian at Yale, Arnie Westad, uh, or uh, the economist, Branko Milanovic, um, and a lot of other people have made an argument that the, the central battle, ideological battle of the 20th century was about how do we create uh, you know, development uh, or modernization was, and modernization was one version of how we create development. Modernization theory was one... Pr- conceptual framework for how we create development. Obviously, communism, um, both Soviet-style communism and more laterally Chinese-style communism, um, or whatever we, you know, uh, call the system that China has today. I believe that uh, 
Branko Milanovic calls it political capitalism. These are all uh, mechanisms um, and uh, frameworks for creating development. And development has to do two things, it seems to me, in order to be legitimate uh, for the country that is being developed. Uh, and I say legitimate, the, 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 the leadership legitimates itself to the people. Not only, they have to do two things. One is they have to grow the amount of wealth that and the wealth and the income of the country. And second, they have to have some effort to distribute that growth and wealth in a way that seems somehow, some way fair, right? And, you know, what constitutes fairness is, you know, a, a complicated debate and different societies and cultures will have different definitions. It may have some sense of like, it's not too much inequality. That's one version of it. It may also be that some groups deserve more than others because they're more productive or perhaps because they're from a privileged group within the society that, you know, is seen to be more worthy in some way. I mean, and you know, if you look historically, these things have been justified in a wide variety of ways. But in the 20th century, it was a century of economic egalitarianism to a degree that, uh, you know, is really unprecedented in, in world history. Um, you know, there was a turn towards the late 20th century where people began to accept growing inequality. And obviously one of the big stories of the last 40 years, particularly in, in the West, has been the growth of inequality. Branko Milanovic, again, and he's written about this for you guys in the American interest, you know, has documented that the two big stories of inequality over the course of the last 40 years has been growing in-country inequality in almost every country in the world, uh, and yet at the same time shrinking global inequality if you take the global population as a whole, largely as a result of the fact that, you know, uh, eight, 900,000, sorry, eight, 900 million Chinese have been lifted out of poverty and large numbers of people have been lifted out of poverty in South Asia and Africa as well. So, you know, so we have a, had a certain amount of compression in terms of global inequality, but people don't think that much in terms of global inequality. People's political identities are primarily national. And so the perception is that even though, in fact, there's been a growth of uh, global equality, what people perceive is in their communities, in their political communities, their nation states, there's been a growth in inequality. And that's one of the drivers, I think, of the ructions that we're seeing particularly across democratic societies uh, in the West. So, I mean, um, you know, just the, the reason I asked that, and I was just going to say, I, it's not about, uh, I, I don't want to push you to, to like work out this thesis about, you know, something you haven't written yet, though really that is the premise of this podcast is we work out theses of things <laughs> we, we may never actually write. So, so that, that that's a, a thing in of itself. But the, the, um, the question I have for you on that is is then is basically one of legitimacy, and I think this is something that that gets at the core of 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 maybe and Shadi, you correct me if I'm misrepresenting your position here, but at least um, the 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 core worry uh, in your essay at the Atlantic, Shadi, is one of the legitimacy of the existing system, and it's tied to the kind of the procedural reality, the legitimacy of the procedural system and the legitimacy of the system of how we legitimate uh, rule and and uh, and governance. And one of the things that I've noticed, Shadi, at least in a lot of the sort of pushback against you was saying, you know, I mean, it's it's very emotional. I think a lot of it's incoherent. But part of it is saying that the system itself, for all sorts of reasons, is no longer legitimate. And, you know, and including things like, you know, the Electoral College and the rest of it. But there's a lot of anger about the legitimacy of the system writ large. And there's a lot of sort of new stuff, new sort of and or even sort of uh, warmed over old style political thinking, I think, being sort of shoehorned into this. 
So I don't know, Shadi, say say something about legitimacy, maybe, and about like what how you're struggling with this, uh, and we can sort of then I don't know, maybe maybe talk through some of those questions. Yeah. So I don't want to presume that all of our listeners are aware of the article, uh, but uh, you know, I guess they should read it and decide on their own what it actually says. But um, you know, it's interesting. I'll just like a little bit of throat clearing clearing here. I I woke up on Sunday morning knowing from my editor at the Atlantic that it was coming out sometime in the morning. I honestly didn't think think about it much. And I'm like, oh, this piece will probably get the standard attention. But, you know, I I tried to actually write it in a pretty measured and careful way. And I I did kind of... um, uh, you know, redraft certain parts just to be just to be a little bit more on the safe side. So I I was really caught off guard as Sunday went on. I'm like, wait, what is going on? And I, it's maybe uh, a criticism of me that I misjudged the the sort of national mood in this regard, and I didn't anticipate was probably what's probably been the most vigorous response to anything I've written in my life. Um, and I'm just like, huh, okay. So that is just like a little bit of background there. Um, and I think what I've realized too in reflecting why the response has been so vociferous is people who don't know my work and a lot of people who have just um, read something of mine for the first time, they, they're getting into it and they don't know, they don't know what my starting premises are. So for me, I saw this piece as the latest in a long body of work that is very consistent in one particular way. But my view about democracy is a minoritarian view. Uh, Most academics don't necessarily, at least now, don't share it. Um, And usually when I'm writing about this kind of thing, I'm explicit that my view is divergent and everything that I will subsequently write will be based on this different foundation. Now, no one who's reading this Atlantic article is really going to be aware of that background. So they're like, Shadi doesn't know what democracy is. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have to I have to relitigate this same. So, I mean, the short version is I have a very minimalistic conception of democracy. And apparently less and less people agree with me. Well, so, Nils, I mean, maybe I could just push you on that a little bit, because I think this is to me is is interesting, because in a sense... In a sense, you know, I, I reading you through uh, these things, and I mean, in many ways, it's, I think we are similar in this way, is that that um, maybe sort of in contradistinction to Shadi's approach, it's not that, that democracy itself is, is any sort of inherent good. It, it's that it's, it's some of these secondary things. And so, I mean, is, is, is democracy as a, as a mechanism becoming delegitimated because of everything you were outlining earlier that, that in fact, you know, this, this kind of inequality, this, this, this social bargain that existed earlier now since, uh, you know, the end of communism, the, the, the crazy 90s and, and, and beyond, it's just been sort of coming apart even more and more. And so, so the actual foundations the, of the, the, the legitimation of, of rule in general, no matter what kind of political system is underlying it, uh, is coming undone. So I think the answer to that is basically yes, although I don't think it's just about economic inequality. I think that there are, you know, lots of people across the political spectrum who feel as if there was a social contract, there was a particular social hierarchy that, you know, some people are questioning whether that was legitimate to begin with um, and are demanding to be 
brought into the social contract in new ways. And other people find that very threatening because their social position, uh, which may already be being eroded, would be further eroded if those people make advances. Um, you know, one thing I appreciate about your, your piece and your work in general, Shadi, is that I, while I don't share your minoritarian view of democracy, I appreciate the candor and the honesty with which that position is, is put forward. And I can, I, can respect, I can respect that, actually. Like, I understand that there's a perspective that we need to put guardrails on democracy that protect minority groups, a, a variety of different minority groups. It protects, you know, religious minorities, subalterns of various sorts, ethnic minorities, uh, economic minorities, i.e. rich people, et cetera, right, that need to be protected from the passions of the mob. Um, and in fact, you know, lots of the debates that were went into the founding documents of this country were precisely about how do we put guardrails around, you know, the passions of the majority. Um, mob rule uh, is, is something that uh, was, has been worried about in this country for a long time. The question is, who is the mob, right? And uh, people see different parts of, you know, see the mob in different places. Is the mob the militia movement and the Boogaloo Boys? Is the mob the BLM movement? Is the mob the people, you know, in Occupy who are demanding more egalitarianism? Well, from the point of view of the people who, you know, have change being demanded of them, all of those are mobs, right? Um, I, I want to put one thing on the table with respect to Shadi's piece. I, I actually agreed with your thesis about how it would be, it's likely that in the event of a, legitimate loss by Joe Biden, the left will have a crazy freak out. And I think that that's a really serious problem. The thing that I had a problem with was you're saying that that was the only thing, <laughs> I think I'm quoting you, that you were truly worried about, right? Like, okay, yes, I'm worried about that. But like, that's about like, I don't know, fourth or fifth or sixth down on my, my list of worries. And I don't think that that's just a matter of sort of political values that I've, uh, I've listed, it that, listed it that way. That's partly about probability and the impact of the particular events. Um, and let me, yeah. just, let me just elaborate one further thing on this, which I think might be useful for you to react to. I think what we have going on in this country right now is, and I, this is not a both sidesism argument, but there is some parallelism. There is a significant faction on both the left and the right that believes that the only way they lose is because somehow the system was rigged. You know, in the case of the left, it's about voter suppression, the electoral college, gerrymandering, et cetera. In the case of the right, it's about illegals voting or too many brown people having been led into the country or et cetera, et cetera, right? That's thing number one. Thing number two is both sides believe that if the other side wins this election, they're going to change the rules in ways that make it impossible for the losers ever to compete effectively again. So it's politically existential, right? And then the third thing both sides believe is that not only is it politically existential, is that because of the rule changes that the other side is going to put into place when they win, it's going to be physically existential. So there's a white genocide narrative on the right, and there's a, oh, they're going to start you know, kicking out, uh, you know, Steve, Steve Miller is going to get all of the things he wants. He's going to strip birthright citizenship uh, from brown people. He's going to maybe you know, retroactively strip citizenship from other people and so on and so forth. Now, there's elements of each of these narratives on the left and right that are more plausible than others. But the real point that I'm, makes me really worried about is that if there's a group on either side that believes these things, th that's, that's a reason to take up arms. And if you look historically and comparatively at different countries, that those narratives produce political violence with a shockingly high rate. That's what worries me most.
Yeah, well, that's helpful. You know, first of all, I think you highlighted the one sentence that I would do over in my article. Um, so basically, so I'll just requote it here. You, you, you mentioned a couple, uh, a part of it where I say, I find myself truly worried about only one scenario that Trump will win re-election and Democrats and others on the left will be unwilling, even unable to accept the result. If I would do it over, I think I would rephrase it and say, I find myself most worried about one scenario. I think only one scenario set people off as if like, oh my God, all these other things are going on and this is the only thing you're worried about. And what I would try to, and I responded by saying, well, that's why I put truly worried. Like I'm, I'm mere, I'm worried about other things, but the one thing I'm truly worried about is this scenario. But of course, that maybe gets lost and, and that doesn't maybe, that's maybe not as precise as it should have been. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing. I, so just to basically, as I said here, just so our listeners are aware, this is basically the argument that I'm making that um, Biden losing while winning the popular vote, the left won't be able to come to terms with that result. And that makes mass unrest and low level political violence more likely. But my bigger concern is that we could very well have a broader problem, which to me is a bigger issue than low level violence in certain cities, which is mass disillusion in the democratic process, where you'll have millions of Democrats who quite literally won't be able to get their heads around a Trump victory. I mean, one time was hard enough, but for it to happen two times in a row, both times winning the Electoral College, but not the popular vote, as is likely if Trump wins, um, that you can even imagine. I, I, we were all at those election night parties four years ago where, and I, I was one of those people, uh, I've written about this elsewhere, so it won't be a revelation, but I cried on election night, <laughs> which might sound a little bit odd to people who now think of me as a sort of Trump apologist. But, but you know, I think a lot of us could not process. Now, I was able to make a shift fairly quickly for complex reasons, and I was able to come to terms with Trump's victory. A lot of other people weren't. And I can't imagine how millions of Democrats, after expecting Biden to win, will be able to process it. So, in fact, they won't be able to process it, and they will become convinced that there is no way to win through existing mechanisms, that Democrats are permanently disadvantaged, that America is not, in fact, a democracy in that because uh, democracies are supposed to be responsive. So after four years of a terrible presidency, something as unique as Donald Trump, democracies are supposed to self-correct. And if this, in this case, if, they, if our democracy does not self-correct, it, it undermines the very premise that democracy works. So that's what I'm really worried about here. And that's what I wanted to focus on in the piece. And... Um, and now, even as I'm trying to sort of revisit how bad it's going to be, I'm again reminded that I don't know how large portions of the left are going to deal with this. But Nils, your point, I think, is really important. And this sort of, I think, maybe helps will help clarify for listeners why I have this preoccupation. You said that both sides see this as an existential election. And when when you feel like everything is at stake and that 
um, your very your very life or livelihood is being threatened by the other person winning, that makes not just unrest more likely, but also taking up arms more likely. So what do we do about that? And this is where I come back to something very foundational, which is everyone has to commit to accepting the results of the election according to the existing rules. So if Trump wins the electoral college, even though he loses the popular vote, I don't like that. I'm not a fan of the electoral college, but that those are the rules of the game as they're currently constructed. And there were times where we could have made perhaps more of an effort to get rid of the electoral college. And there were previous efforts. They were blocked in various ways for various reasons. But whatever that backstory is, we are where we are with the rules that we have. And when I see someone like Ian Milheiser, you know, a, a journalist at Vox saying explicitly without apology and getting tens of thousands of retweets and likes, he said that he will not consider a president who wins the Electoral College but loses the popular vote as legitimate. So for him, he's already resolved this question. He has preemptively de- preemptively decided that the most likely scenario if Trump wins will be an illegitimate one. And that to me is very frightening because he's a left of center journalist in a prominent publication. And this is where I see there's some asymmetry. I don't see anyone on the right of center in a mainstream like National Review or something like that saying that um, if Biden wins the way, if, if Biden wins, we're preemptively deciding that he is illegitimate. So I'm seeing mainstream people who should know better starting to take up this narrative, which is already um, putting us in this realm of illegitimacy, despite Trump perhaps winning by the existing rules. So that's why I feel so, like I felt a need to focus more on on one particular side of it, because that's that's where that's where I see something new happening. So let me, I have several reactions to this. So first of all, I think the reason why the Democrats or the left feel this uh, sense of the illegitimacy of this is, I mean, it's a remarkable fact that since the end of the Cold War, which is, you know, 30 years ago, the Republicans have won the plurality of the vote in a, the popular vote in a presidential election exactly once in 2004. the other six out of the last seven elections, and almost certainly this time around, they're going to Trump will lose it again. He's not even trying to win the popular vote this time, um, you know. And and yet, despite that, the Republicans have you know put a hammer lock on the Supreme Court for the rest of my life, et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's a feeling of you know that this that the system as it's currently constructed is rigged against the left, not against the right. So if everybody follows the rules, it's rigged against the left and not the right. So it's not surprising that you'll see the voices of claiming that the system is illegitimate from the left and not the right. It's just structural. It's not because the left is more uh, inclined to delegitimate the other side. In fact, if anything, the thing that's been shocking to me over the last 30 years, certainly since Gingrich uh, and his Republican revolution, as he put it, um, is the refusal to accept the legitimacy even of presidents who win the majority of the vote, like Obama, you know, and uh, in, in both 2008 and 2012, there was a huge rejectionist attitude that like, you know, you don't actually get to implement your agenda, even though you won. We're going to try to stop you from doing anything by every means we have. Right. So I just don't think it's parallel on that level. 
But there's a deeper problem that I want to I want to emphasize, which is that the thing that I've been most worried about, um, and I've spent much of the summer, you know, working on this particular scenario. This you know scenario is related to this particular possibility, is that you know if the election goes forward and everybody who wants to vote gets to, and all of their votes get counted properly, then I'm willing to accept myself, and I think actually most Democrats and most of the left are willing to accept that yes, it sucks that we're in this structural situation where the electoral college screws us over. But like, if, you know, if the votes go down this way, you know, it sucks, we're gonna get Donald Trump for another four years, we're gonna have to do things to prevent him from, you know, dismantling the institutions more than he already has, et cetera. The real fear though right now is that he and Barr and their enablers in the Republican party rank and file establishment are not going to allow everybody who wants to vote to vote and are gonna do everything they can to dis allow as many of the votes as possible that people do end up casting. So you see this, and this is not like a random journalist like Ian, this is the president of the United States saying that voting by mail is corrupt. It's, you know, it's filled with fraud with no evidence whatsoever. So like the reason why I find like your argument here about the, I'm more worried about Ian Milhauser than I'm worried about President <laughs> Trump. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so here's the thing, and this colors a lot of my approach to these issues. I sort of take as a given that Trump is terrible and sucks. So people ask me sometimes, Shadi, you don't, why aren't you getting outraged about Trump? For me, that goes without saying. It's like when there's a terrorist, okay, this maybe is not the best. I guess I could say it on the podcast. I wouldn't write this down. But it's similar when whenever there was a terrorist attack that was committed by Muslims, and I would I had a policy of never condemning terrorist attacks in general, but particularly if they were committed by Muslims, because I was like, well, hey, it should go without saying that me as an American Muslim, unless you have evidence to the contrary, you should assume that I don't like terrorism. So I feel like there's no reason to think, well, maybe some people might disagree with this, but as far as I, in my own mind, there's there would be no real legitimate reason for someone to think that I would support Trump or vote for Trump. I have a history of of being a Democrat, of, of being on the left. People can debate where on the left I might actually be. But I think I've always been really open about that. And um, not to kind of use this as a sort of feather in my cap, just stating a fact that I was also very open about my support for Bernie Sanders uh, during the campaign, the primary. So I feel like I want to be able to focus on my own side because that's where I can actually influence things. If, if I'm just another voice out of the thousands of people on Twitter who every single day are getting tens of thousands of retweets by saying Trump is bad in all these different ways. That is just a kind of virtue signaling. It's just a kind of, unless I'm saying something new and original. And I think your piece about um, the integrity of the election, which I reread uh, today, I think reminded me that, you know, there's, you know, there, there are other arguments. There are other arguments here that are actually distinctive in you that, and then you're able to write that for a piece. Okay. But a lot of people are just saying Trump is bad as a kind of daily thing when they wake up in the morning. So that, so I think that I have a responsibility to kind of, if you will, um, police my own side a little bit more because I feel like there's a real 
lack of inward looking of 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 self criticism and I'll just say what the point you made about um about Obama how Republicans viewed Obama versus you know the situation we have now I mean one reason I think Trump is really paranoid is because he somewhat correctly I can't I don't know what how his mind works but since Trump was elected, the left has, and, and I'm not even just the left, the left of center, boring people, normies, whatever, Democrats, have been obsessed with delegitimizing him. And Russiagate, I think, is an example of this where there were legitimate inquiries to be had, but this went well overboard. And it was, it was part of a mainstream position in the Democratic Party. And we've been, I see this 24-7. Trump is a fascist. He's a dictator. He's going to make us into God knows what. Mussolini, Hitler, the comparisons, Godwin's law. It's been nonstop assault with these kinds of words, drumming them into the minds and hearts of Democrats and the left that this, uh, you know, so if you look at it from that perspective, I can understand why some of my um, Republican friends are like, God, we have never seen anything like this. That's not the way that's not the way right of center folks in National Review for the most part talked about Obama. They wanted to block every aspect of his agenda. They wanted to, you know, block Supreme Court justices or whatever and they, they probably went too far on that. But it wasn't this obsession with Obama is a fascist, Obama is a dictator. Yes, that was on the far right, but I don't recall that being the dominant narrative when I was reading National Review, for example. Nils, let me, or both of you guys, let me let me ask, I, I think there's a way to, to just scope this out a little bit and get us to what to me is actually, you know, the deeper question in a lot of this that also gets us above the sort of, what ultimately to me is is a lot of sort of partisanship around the debate, specifically around Shadi's essay and how that all got caught up in it. But Nils, you said something along the lines of, you know, uh, about voter suppression. And, you know, I think it was Damon Linker this week also wrote a piece. Um, he was talking about, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. The I, I can describe it because he was con- he was nice to me. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I remember So you it. remember that one well. No, but let me, I just want to focus on one thing on it and get on something that Nils that, that you were you're getting at there. Uh, he said something about the the how Democratic votes are inefficiently distributed across the country at this point. Uh, I I think it's a concept that's sort of it's probably familiar to both of you guys, right? But it, it's a fact that that you know the way get this is gets back to what you were saying, Shadi. It's like the system that we have ultimately for on all sorts of levels um, ends up, you know, it's it's a, a certain kind of geographic representation. There's a book that came out, I think it was last year. Uh, I think it was yeah, I think it was in 2019. Um, this guy Jonathan Rodden, it was called Why Cities Lose, and he he looked at sort of this idea that how um, representation going back to, to uh, you know, the 19th century and even in Europe, how, how democracies worked and basically the rise of social democracy, how specifically the left, which was the party of um, uh, factory workers, you know, the, the working class, those were all, you know, with the, the, the basically, you know, the, the peasantry generally was becoming more reactionary anyway. It was never sort of the, the real source of the left's power. And it was always geographically focused on cities. And that there's a, there's a problem there, unless you have a certain kind of 
system in place, which is, uh, uh, you know, at large voting all across and that, you know, there, there is no geographic representation. At that point, you know, Nils, a lot of the arguments that you that you end up making about um, uh, that sense of injustice I think is is grounded if you take that as the principle that basically we have one country and we should be just voting without any sort of concept of geographic representation. We must do away with the whole concept of ge- geographic representation, and then you'll have a more just system. Like that's that's I think an intuition of legitimacy among very much among Democrats, not to say the left, but I think strongly among the Democrats. What you said since the end of the Cold War. Still, that's a that's. That, you know, taking Shadi's stance, which is very much uh, talking about democracy, how it works, institutions that we have, that is also, you know, I mean, saying, doing away with that geographic dimension of representation, that's not a, a minor tweak, right? I mean, it, it's it's a pretty thoroughgoing one. And in fact, you know, when, when it was uh, yesterday was Constitution Day or today uh, that, that it was ratified, um, uh, and right, I mean the 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 compromises that had to go into the Constitution to make it was specifically around these sorts of issues. These are foundational issues. To be now saying that it's something that well, it's a problem for the true legitimacy of the system is also kind of a big deal. But this is why Nils, I was asking you to really think about and talk a little bit about like the the what legitimates a system. Is it is it the fact that it's a democracy and it works as imperfectly as it is and allows for stability, or is there a concept of justice behind this that uh, you know is more important and trumps all of this stuff? Because I think. That ultimately is where the two of you end up on quite different places, right, Nils? So let me just first of all say that I I appreciate what Shadi was saying about policing one's own side. And I basically agree with that. Um, I think that the left in general polices its own side a lot more than the right polices its own side. But that's another matter. Um, I also think that the timing of such policing uh, is probably worth discussing. I mean, I think that, you know, if you'd publish this piece the day after the election where Biden lost fair and square in the Electoral College, I don't think you would have gotten nearly as much of a reaction. I think people feel like we're seven weeks out from this election and this is the fight you want to have. So I think that just there was a timing issue with this piece, Shadi. I'm not trying to criticize. I think people should write whatever they want to write whenever they want to write it. But I think part of the reaction you got was partly because of, you know, where we are in the campaign. You know, you really should. Is the left really going to be engaged in circular firing squad like seven weeks out of this election? Is that where we want to be? Be that as it may, I want to go back to the question that um, that Demir just asked me. So I, you know, like Shadi, I don't really like the Electoral College either. Um, I think that, you know, after the Civil War, there was a debate about effectively abolishing the states except as local administrative apparatuses, but abolishing them in terms of federal government, uh, influence the federal government. And for reasons that we don't need to go into now, that failed. And we have the system we have. And I basically agree with you. Like if you win the Electoral College, those are the rules. Um, you know, the truth is that neither party actually tries to seriously contest, you know, states that are uh, not close. Uh, the real people who lose in terms of enfranchisement is not so much, you know, people from big states, but people from states that are totally red or totally blue because right. both parties just ignore them. Right. So you get ignored if you're in South Dakota just as much as you get ignored if you're in California. Now, of course, a lot more people are being ignored in California than are being ignored in South Dakota. So that's not parallel either. But still, um, I accept that this is the system we have. And we have to, you know, we, we, we have to accept the results or we have to change the rules of the system. Even if the rules are unchangeable, this is the system we have. Um, 
I do also want to just point out one thing that people don't really know about. There's been an anti-urban bias in our constitution that goes way back. And that's not just about the geographic spread in the, uh, in, in the, uh, through the electoral college. Um, I mean, there's a little known episode, which I suspect may well be repeated um, uh, next year uh, if, if Trump wins. So in, 1920, in the 1920 census was uh, the first census that marked that the majority of Americans lived in cities. Uh, and as everybody knows, you know, lots of immigrants have been pouring into the country um, from, uh, you know, from Eastern and Southern Europe primarily um, in, the, in the previous two or three decades um, to the 1920 census. And the 1920 census indeed revealed that you had large numbers of recently arrived immigrants in all of these cities and that the reapportionment that was supposed to take place um, would massively shift political power out of rural districts and into the cities all across the country. And so the Republicans, when they won, just said, screw it, we're not reapportioning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, because they don't have to. And because that's just a norm. And I wouldn't be surprised if they don't like the results of the census that they're intentionally botching now. Right? I mean, so, you know, that they will just ignore it and not redistrict on that basis because it's just a norm. So I, what I worry about is things like that mm -hmm. because it's all well and good to say the constitution is what it is and we need to venerate it. But there's all these other ways in which the constitutional process, and I agree that elections are largely a legitimation mechanisms. And I'm not a total cynic and think that that's all they are, but that is largely an extremely important function of elections. But there's all sorts of other ways to corrupt the, the function of elections as legitimation mechanisms that go beyond you know, simply refusing to deal with the electoral college, right? There's, you know, disenfranchisement in all sorts of ways, right? And the most basic way to disenfranchise people is to not count them in the census so that they don't get apportioned properly. And that's exactly what's going on right now. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that there, there's one potentially clear remedy. It's hard to do. And I just want to put it to you, uh, Nils, and see what you think. So what I sort of allude to this at the end of my piece, but I think it's worth sort of unpacking a little bit more is... Well, there is an option, which is that the Democrats can get better at winning the Electoral College. Now, what does that actually mean in practice? And I think that um, if I'm putting on, like if I imagine what uh, my conservative friends would say and what they have actually said to, to some degree or another, is if, the, if we get rid of the Electoral College and we, we choose our presidents through popular vote— it will basically embolden Democrats to be rather maximalist. They they can sort of be a party that relies on urban college-educated whites plus minorities, and that's a strong coalition that can often win uh, the popular vote, even with relatively weak candidates like Hillary Clinton. And I think that reasonable conservatives who don't like Trump are sort of in this bind because they see how this new kind of, and you talk about this in the collapse of racial liberalism, that this new identitarian, maybe that's not the right word, but identity-oriented identity left that no longer believes in the kind of old racial liberal consensus that Barack Obama sort of was the culmination of, that they are this new left this new woke left, if you will, is much more maximalist in what it wants. It is more intolerant. It doesn't particularly appreciate dissent. If it had its way, want to have anti-racism, a, a, a ministry of anti-racism, uh, sorry, department uh, 
Department of Anti-Racism as a cabinet office or whatever. These are things that seem, I think, understandably quite authoritarian and not particularly amenable to compromise. So without the Electoral College, Democrats will have even less incentive to reach out to the, quote unquote, the white working class. My remedy would be, let's think about how we can build a larger coalition that is more competitive in the Electoral College by being, number one, more respectful of religious conservatives. And this, as as someone who has engaged in more sort of uh, multi-faith dialogues with evangelicals in recent years because of my work on Islam's role in public life, I mean, I feel like one thing I always hear is um, Democrats are not respecting my religious freedom. So I don't want to vote for Trump, and I probably won't vote for Trump, but there's no way I can bring myself to vote for a Democrat. And the best they can do then is abstain. Um, And if we had had an approach where we said we're not going to have a religious litmus test, we're going to be, we're going to try to reach out in a serious, sincere way to people of faith, and we're not going to have a litmus test on abortion on the state level, and we'll say, hey, there's some parts of the country where you have um, cultural conservatives who feel very passionately about this and will respect that. And that we would also say that we're going to have an unabashedly economically populist message, at least in some parts of the country, and to try to win over having a real class critique. We get we kind of put some of this woke stuff to the side and we say class and poverty are the independent variables. If we had a message that was left populist and respectful of religious conviction, we could win in in some of these states. It might take time, but why don't we actually try to do that? So, first of all, like as a political strategy, I basically agree with you entirely. I don't I don't, I don't dissent from that at all. Uh, we can ask ourselves why that hasn't been the way that the Democratic Party at a national level has gone. Um, I have theories about that that are perhaps half-baked, but a lot of it has to do with the role of money. Um, it's hard to really mount an effective left economic left policy program when you need to raise billions and billions and billions of dollars in order to run campaigns across. I mean, how much money is going to be spent on all the different Senate Congress and presidential campaigns this year. I mean, I, I don't know what the number is, but it's many billions, right? Um, and so it's just hard to build a populist coalition on the basis of needing, while well, you need to spend that kind of money. Um, so, you know, I think that public financing of elections, you know, there's various things that we want to do to, you know, get rid of getting rid of Citizens United so that there's not as much reliance on dark money. I mean, there's a bunch of things that we might want to do, but a lot of them run into constitutional pitfalls. So I think that there's, 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 blocking the structural blockages. I mean, there's a reason, you know, what I kept saying about Bernie, I, I, I was a Bernie fan. I actually personally voted for Elizabeth Warren in the primaries, but like, you know, I, I was drawn to Bernie's message. But what I kept telling the people who are the, the Bernie stands, as they say, is the main reason why Bernie loses is there's not enough socialists in this country. There's only, you know, 12% of the country that really are bought into the, you know, left populist uh, as you put it, kind of agenda. There's just not enough people. Um, so, you know, there's a really big popular 
faction in favor of capitalism in this country. I mean, it's an old joke, right? That the, the Democratic Party is the second most enthusiastic capitalist party in the in the Western world, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I just don't know that there's actually a constituency for the kind of, I'm not so sure that it's actually a winning policy. Now, it may work in some places. Like, I think that that could work really well, for example, in states that have this sort of left populist tradition, like a Wisconsin, right? Um, or Minnesota, maybe, or other parts of the upper Midwest. I'm not sure that that's going to work to win over voters, a majority of voters in Mississippi. Um, but Nils, yeah. can I ask you, just to jump in right there, because I think it's a, it's a good time to, to just sort of ask you this. I, I think I've heard you, you, I've seen you even say on Twitter, but you just mentioned it earlier uh, that, there, you know, there was that, 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 uh, that idea to abolish the states. Should we abolish the states? So... The short answer is, I think that, you know, it's, this is a ridiculous idea in terms of practical achievement. It's yeah. never going to go anywhere. So I'll just say that right up front. I'm not going to be pretending about that. But yes, I mean, I, I do think that the states are fine to be left in place as a administrative apparatus for local governance. I have no problem with that. We don't need to have, you know, in fact, some states need to be broken up. I live in California and the state is way too big for it to be governed effectively from Sacramento. And in fact, it is not governed effectively from Sacramento. We probably, from an administrative perspective, should push more things down to county levels, right? Um, and, you know, quite a bit has been pushed down in California over the last few years. Uh, but in terms of national, uh, you know, the role of states in national politics, I really believe it's a total legacy path dependency from the particular conditions under which the original uh, United States were formed um, out of the 13 original colonies almost a quarter of a millennium ago, right? Where, you know, these all had much more independence. There were only, you know, there were, there were fewer people in the United States at the time of the founding, at the time of the signing of the constitution than there are in the Bay Area today, right? I mean, it's just a much smaller place with much more far flung. It was almost entirely rural other than a couple of big cities. And so these these entities wanted to be able to maintain a certain amount of, uh, you know, and by the way, they had much, much more different political cultures then. Um, it wasn't just about slaveholding. It was very different parts of Britain had, you know, implanted their settlers in the different parts of the uh, colonies that led to very different political cultures and the tidewater in New England in you know, Quakers uh, in, in Pennsylvania, the Cavaliers uh, in the South. So you had very, very different divergent political cultures. Now, 250 years later, the country, despite the current political divisions, is in fact a much more unified, politically unified, and historically unified country in terms of a common set of historical experiences than the world we had in, in, uh, in 1878, sorry, 1787. Um, so I really think it's, it's, it's moved differently, right? And so, you know, look, I'm, I'm a majoritarian. We, we talked earlier about this sort of fundamental philosophical difference, I guess, that Shadi and I have. I'm much more of a majoritarian than you are, Shadi. And so I sort of feel like the Senate from day one was an anti-majoritarian institution. Um, it was designed as such. Um, and so to some extent, people can say, well, the founding fathers designed it as such. And so we should keep it as such. I don't know why we necessarily have to venerate these guys from 250 years ago. If the system's not working well for us, let's rewrite the system. Well, so a couple of things. i let you jump in the sec, Shadi. But, you know, like, so it's, it's one of these things, though. It's, it's, a, it's a real trend, I think, that, that one can identify if one looks at how people talk about and think about, you know, post-Cold War governance in a lot of ways. You see it in Europe in a lot of ways. And it's, it's interesting. The one thing I picked up on what you're just saying, though, Nils, you said, California itself is so big and unmanageable that it should be broken up. 
And yet, and yet, at the, in the same breath, you're arguing for a more cohesive, a singular, um, you know, unified sort of governance structure as well. And this sort of gets back to this, you know, this idea of, you know, what, what, what is governance in a lot of ways? And what are we talking about? What is legitimacy? Because, you know, I mean, the reason I say like post-Cold War, the funny thing is, is that that's one of those interesting guiding principles about Europe as well. It's that, you know, to a certain extent, it's encouraging uh, uh, you know, what's a devolution and, 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 you know, bringing back certain competences to the local level. And at the same time, uh, disempowering the, 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 the nation state in favor of some sort of supranational governance in the, in the shape of the EU. Now, in a lot of ways, the EU, I think, uh, has run into the, the, the hard limits of that approach. In fact, that, that the supranational governance thing, which in a lot of ways was trying to recreate the nation state on this sort of supranational level. Maybe that's the mistake, and maybe governance shouldn't look like that at that high level. But maybe talk to me a little bit about that, Nils, about legitimacy there as well. Because how do, how do you talk about, like, California's too big, and then you say the United States needs to be more, more, more unified and unitary? Right. So this goes back to the concluding paragraphs of the article, uh, the review of Sam Moyne's book and the yep. one, uh, LA Review of Books. Um, and this is this is the article I've been thinking about for many years and I'm still cogitating on because I haven't worked it out. So I'll, I'll try to think out loud with you guys and tell you what I think. Great. Um, so basically, I think a lot of the legitimacy issues that governments are facing, and like you, a lot of my thinking about this has come from many years of observing what's going on in the European Union, is uh, derived from the fact that we do not have decision making over the proper over decision making rights or decision rights are not located in the proper levels of governance. So you think about uh, multi-level governance, right? Like all of us are subjected to rules by our local government, our mayors, our city councils, our counties, our rules by our state, rules by our national government, and then to some extent, uh, rules that operate at a transnational or global level. Right. There's different kinds of things are being uh, are being um, adjudicated at different levels of the system in terms of governance. And my view on this is if we look at it at the largest level globally, is there's a handful of phenomena that are policy relevant that are quintessentially global and transnational because they fundamentally involve flows of things all over the world. Um, so things like migration, things like technology uh, flows, things like managing climate change, um, or specifically emissions and mitigation, not so much adaptation. Um, and there's a few others of these things, trade, uh, international finance issues, right? That, that, and for those things, we need to have global institutions that can manage the risks and opportunities associated with those quintessentially global phenomena. Um, then beyond those totally global things, I believe the principle should be one of, you know, what's used, you know, the Catholic Church and the European Union refer to as subsidiarity. We should push decision making down as far as we can towards local, uh, towards local decision making. Um, because, you know, one of the things that a huge number of polls in the United States um, tend to affirm, and in the European Union to some extent too, is the closer the people, the, the people are to the government, the governing unit. So, you know, they're, they're, let's even get more narrow, right? Like, what's the unit that has most, the governance unit that has most impact on my life? It's my condo association, right? <laughs> right? I mean, so, you know, I, I don't pay that much attention to what's going on in my condo association because I think they're doing an okay job at it. But like, actually, in terms of my day-to-day -day existence, those people have more impact on my life than anything else. 
you know, and they're pretty legitimate in my eyes. They make pretty good decisions. I trust them, right? Um, people trust their mayors more than they trust their governors. They trust their governors more than they trust the president or the presidency anyways. And in general, therefore, you want to push the decision making down as low as possible, right? Now, there's some things that you need to push up to a national level for a variety of reasons in order to, for example, facilitate interstate commerce, right? Where we wanna do things that, you know, we wanna have, there be some standards about the way in which, uh, you know, highway funds get distributed so that, you know, we won't drive, as we're trying to drive across the country, we won't suddenly hit a state that decided it wasn't gonna maintain its interstates, right? Or whatever. So there's some things you wanna push up, you wanna have at the national level. But I think one thing that probably should come out of this election regardless of who wins, and this may be the answer to Shadi's concerns that he's raising in his article, is I think we should have a real push towards subsidiarity. Um, you know, and there's an old principle of this. This used to be a principle that was primarily promoted by the right, but I think the left is coming, is cottoning to it much more and more now, which is federalism. Let's push things down. Let's take decision rights out of Washington and move them down to the states and take them out of the state, state capitals and move them down to the counties, take them out of the counties and move them down to the municipalities. In general, if there's, not an ex if there's not a very specific reason why it has to be national, I believe that decision process should be pushed down. Okay, there's, there's a lot that's really interesting there. A couple thoughts come to mind. You mentioned uh, condo associations. I don't think that any of the people in my relatively small building, there's only five units, I don't think that any of them listen to the podcast, so I think I can say this. But if they do <laughs> listen to the podcast, I'm in trouble. But, okay, I'm not a huge fan of my RHOA management. <laughs> the problem is, though, and you're right, that it really does matter. It affects you in ways that a lot of other things don't. However, I'm not particularly participatory. Um, I, I should be, but I'm not. And we can even take this one step, you know, one step further. I don't particularly get engaged in D.C., local elections, even though I probably should. I live in D.C. It's my home. I don't expect to be living anywhere else anytime soon, but I literally can't be bothered. Um, and I honestly, even when I was still sort of, um, I guess, um, more clearly a resident of Pennsylvania, where I, where I was born and raised, I didn't really ever have a great sense of who my representatives were in Congress. I mean, I knew their names, and I, but I, I think that even back then I would struggle sometimes. Wait, is that my my congressional representative, or is it, or is it the like? I always got like mixed up with counties and stuff. I was really not good at this stuff when I was younger. So, but I think there's a bigger problem here that a lot of like cosmopolitans like like us, we don't have a strong sense of home. D.C. is my home, but I don't feel passionately about it being my home, and therefore I'm going to be less engaged. And this gets to like David Goodhart stuff and a lot of other folks, somewheres versus anywheres, whatever. So we have this problem where we can't be mobilized in the way we should be because we prioritize national politics, but we're not the ones who are most mobilized generally on the local level. And um, it's usually older people who are more mobilized and older p people tend to skew, at least for the time being, uh, Republican, so on and so forth. That's one thing which I think is a little bit of a problem. But even if we did become more supportive, not just in theory, but also in practice of federalism, you see clear instances where we don't actually live up to our own rhetoric on the left side of the spectrum where – um, Donald Trump has had a very 
federalized response to COVID. He said, you know, fuck it. I'm not dealing with this. I'm not going to have a national strategy. I'm going to let the states do what they want. And I could have imagined a parallel history where we we as liberals or Democrats would have said, oh, that was actually the better way to go. It didn't turn out that way for a number of reasons. But this idea that um, local and state responses. So I'm very much subject to Mayor Bowser's regulations on COVID. She has quite a bit of autonomy on that. And various states have had a lot of autonomy. And that's why we see such divergent approaches. That doesn't seem to be what the left wanted. That said, if Trump had done a more nationalized response, we can imagine what folks on the left would have been saying. They would have said, look, he's trying to consolidate power. So what do we really want? So let me let me jump in on that p- pandemic issue uh, specifically, because I think it's a it's a characteristic and it's a good test case of what I'm talking about. So a pandemic, by definition, is a global phenomenon that if you're going to manage a pandemic risk, you can only deal with it at a global level. I mean, that's the definition of a pandemic is that it's a global phenomenon, right? It, it, an epidemic is a local phenomenon or a national phenomenon. A pandemic is a global phenomenon. And the reason why, you know, Lots of money and time and effort and energy has been invested by lots of different countries in the World Health, Organiz- World Health Organization and pandemic preparedness exercises and efforts was precisely to be able to deal with, uh, you know, and to try to nip in the bud potential pandemics. And, you know, we were successful in the case of SARS, successful in the case of MERS, successful in the case of Ebola, right, in nipping these things in the bud. They did not, in fact, become pandemics. They were locally contained. But they were locally contained because global institutions were doing pandemic surveillance all over the world. And when they saw an outbreak that potentially could become a pandemic, they flooded the zone with resources in order to be able to contain it locally. Right. So that's that's the global model. Pandemic preparedness is a global phenomenon that requires global institutions. Once the thing became pandemic, then I think, you know, now you're dealing with like local medical issues. Right. And some things may have been worth doing nationally. Right. Uh, Like, you know, procurement, for example, and distribution of uh, equipment and so on. Um, Certainly issues of like shutting down uh, travel. I mean, you know, Trump will try to claim he did a good job because he shut down travel from China. But in fact, he didn't shut down travel from China at all. He like just shut down travels of Chinese nationals because, you know, he wasn't actually motivated by dealing with the pandemic. He was motivated by pursuing some other agenda, which we can assume what it was, but he was letting lots of people in. There was a pandemic going off in Europe and he let people, you know, come flying back into the country and not be quarantined, right? And not not actually do border controls. He could have done that unilaterally and he should have. Like anybody coming into a country from a foreign country, I don't care what your status is, you have to be quarantined for two weeks. If he had done that, it would have made a huge difference in tamping down the controls, you know, the, the spread of the virus in this country, but he didn't do that. Um, once the thing is in the country and spread everywhere, well, then it's, then now it's a public health problem. It's not a pandemic containment problem. It's already gone. The genie is out of the bottle. And at this point, it really is a national, I mean, a, a local response that makes sense. And if, you know, if people don't want to wear masks in North Dakota and they want to have, you know, 10% of their old people die, well, you know, I guess that's what North, North Dakotans can decide they want to do it that way. And if, if Marylanders or DCers don't want that, they, they cannot have it uh, work that way. But if you're going to do that, then what you should also be doing is allowing states to shut down border uh, borders with states that are doing things in ways that they don't respect. And 
you know, here there's just been a festival of incoherence on both sides of the aisle on that. I mean, the truth is, in terms of the national response to, to the COVID pandemic, um, is neither Democrats nor Republicans have done a good job at all of containing uh, the pandemic. I mean, there's a culture war about masking, which is stupid, but the truth is like in Republican states, they don't enforce masks and they let people go to concerts and Trump rallies and, you know, and, uh, you know, parties in the Ozarks and whatnot. And in democratic states, they allow them to go out and, you know, protest in large crowds and, uh, you know, participate in BLM, uh, marches. And in both cases, they're responding to the political constituencies that they have locally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like it, it just it still highlights, you know, the, the question of legitimacy for me still in all of this. And, and, and you know, maybe this are coming up on an hour. Uh, Nils, I'm not going to keep you keep you indefinitely on this. But but it's it's it still strikes at that question. Right. Is that, you know, even on the pandemic, I, I think you framed that really nicely because you're right. Once the, the genie's out of the bottle, the, the transnational and or even the, the national authorities have to actually delegate some authority down but why do they have to ultimately is is it because of a question of legitimacy because it becomes truly unsettling i think for a lot of people to imagine that you know some some board of people uh that is not particularly accountable to them that they never remember voting for and there's no personality attached to it is all of a sudden setting uh you know uh strictures on on sort of day-to-day life i mean it really does come down to that so you know again it's it's getting back to again this election coming up and what i see and before we get back back to the election i know you want to go to that for a close but Mm -hmm. um i just want to point out one thing i I didn't look i haven't looked at the statistics recently but it's it's a striking fact that for most of the covid pandemic every single governor in the country has been deemed by their people to be doing a better job on managing the COVID pandemic locally than than Trump has. Trump, yeah. This is in, this is true even in super super Trumpy states. Mm-hmm. In super duper Trumpy states, they even there they prefer the job that their governor is doing to the one that the Trump is doing. And to yeah. me, that speaks mm-hmm. to the fact that there's local legitimacy ultimately is is better locally than it is nationally. But Nils, it's That's also not- a little bit worrying because it actually I think demonstrates the lack of wisdom of crowds, if you will, in that um, people maybe aren't always a good judge of local performance. I mean, the fact that uh, Andrew Cuomo, I suppose that if you're if you're a, a Democrat who lives in New York, chances are you think Andrew Cuomo is, you know, pretty good. Some people even think he's like a national hero of some sort. That's a bad judgment on the part of local people <laughs> Who should actually, because as subsidiarity, they're closer to the events, they should be aware that Cuomo really messed things up. Or, you know, in Montana or wherever it happens to be, where governors have been pretty blasé and have allowed things to get a lot worse than they should have been. That this actually, I think, I mean, I want to believe as someone who has been a proponent of subsidiarity, and um, I, I, I don't know if I believe in it as strongly in terms of like what we actually see with outcomes on the ground, maybe people just suck and they can't be a good judge of their <laughs> local context. What would you say to that? <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that there's something to that. Um, at the same time, you know, democracy is partly about letting people make mistakes for themselves, <laughs> right? 
Well, um, well, so I mean, I, but that that's I, kind I, of, I, yeah. Go on. I, I would just the one thing I would say about Cuomo is, I, and I agree with you in terms of you know his performance has been spectacularly overrated. But part of the reason it's been spectacularly overrated is as bad as Cuomo has been, he's been ten times better than Bill De Blasio, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so I low think, bar. You know, it's a low. I mean, it's the lowest possible bar. But like you know, so I, I do think that sort of people are making these kinds of judgments. And, you know, there's always possibilities for people to, like, not make good judgments about the way their um, their governments are performing. But, you know, I mean, I've thought about this also in terms of pandemic performance, looking at Scandinavia. Right. I mean, this is getting maybe in the weeds for some of your some of your listeners. But, you know, you look at there, there's been a, a fascinating natural experiment in history that's played out in Scandinavia. Uh, yeah. So you have you look at uh, Denmark, Norway and Sweden, three countries that could hardly be more similar in terms of social structure, in terms of the healthcare system, in terms of social trust, in terms of trust in government. Like these are, you know, high solidarity, high trust in government, high government competence places. And you've seen radically divergent uh, performances in terms of the death rate on COVID, where Sweden decided famously to go for herd immunity. And the result is that they've had five times as many people per capita die as in Denmark and 10 times as many people die per capita as in Norway. Um, you know, that's pretty striking, an order of magnitude difference in terms of the death rate. But guess what? The governments are equally approved on their COVID performance in each country. Yeah. And it may reflect simply that there's a difference in political culture. The Swedes are simply, they believe it's okay to accept a certain number of deaths of old people in old folks' homes in order that young people can roam free and party. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's a political choice, ultimately. I mean, you can laugh at that, but that's a serious choice, no, right? But that's no. also, but that's frightening, though. I mean, the way that if it's as stark as, you, as you're saying here, and I think it might be, actually, and as someone who, I mean, I do think Sweden is fascinating, and but some of it might also be, a certain deference to as into local authority that there is a certain faith in Swedish authorities, um, the public, the public health system, which is pretty technocratic in the sense that it's somewhat um, autonomous and insulated from the elected national government. And people say, well, hey, we have to defer to to this, to these technocrats, so on and so forth. So maybe some of it's about that. But again, it does su suggest that people are sort of instinctually deferential to their local government. If we treat Sweden as kind of like not not a full on country, per se, but a kind of um, a locality where, you know, if you're in Stockholm, a, a lot of people seem to know each other. Um, you know, especially if you're outside of Stockholm, there aren't a lot of other large cities so there is this sense that people are part of a community and they're just like, and maybe there's a kind of Swedish nationalism. I don't even really know how to describe it. I mean, Sweden is a little bit of a mystery and I'm sure you have more insights into what's going on there. But again, it sort of makes me wonder if Swedes are giving an 80% approval rating to the handling of the pandemic. Maybe it's changed a little bit recently, but I remember the last time I looked at these numbers in May or June, 80% approval rating. And you're just like, right. wait a second, how like something isn't again, it's like, this is not the wisdom of crowds. Well, or or it's it's the question. And this it gets, you know, again, maybe this is how we can then get back to this election. Here's a here's a question for you, Nils. Are the the crisis that we have the potential crisis, the potential institutional crisis, and again, one of legitimacy here? Um, how 
how much is it affective and how much is it, do you think, actually based on grievances that if they're not addressed will prove explosive? And when, again, with the Sweden question somewhat in mind, because it seems to a certain extent one can make the case that a system is as legitimate as it's able to convince its polity that it's legitimate. Um, so how much of this is affective and how much do you think it's there's fundamentally underlying things that need to be addressed structurally, not even economically structurally, but somehow structurally to re-legitimate the system? Well, there's been a legitimation crisis brewing in this country for a really long time. I mean, I, my view has been that Trump, insofar as he is part of that, is more symptom than, I mean, he's also driving it, in some cases intentionally for partisan gain, uh, but he's primarily a symptom. Um, and I, you know, we, part of the issue is that there's a series of uh, imbricated crises, right? There's a crisis of epistemology where we now have people who live in fundamentally different factual worlds. Uh, there's a crisis of, of communications and media ecosystems where there are lots of bad actors and bad faith speakers and uh, and mischief makers uh, playing out, not to mention foreigners who are stoking those kinds of divisions. There are you know, stark economic divisions in this country which have gotten much worse over the last 40 years. Uh, the level of precarity that people, you know, well into what we might call the upper middle class feel is incredibly intense. Um, you know, I know, I know lots of people, I mean, I live in San Francisco and so this is a very rich city, but the result of that is I know lots of people who are living paycheck to paycheck on $400,000 a year. Hmm. It's crazy. Hmm. Um, whoa, 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 time out, <laughs> time out. <laughs> Swear to God. $400,000 a year. Yeah. You have a, you have a, you know, $2 million mortgage and you have a couple of kids in private school. Money's gone already. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Well, maybe they don't have to have a two. Well, I guess in San Francisco, a two a two million dollar house is somewhat modest. Anyway, let's not go. Yeah, <laughs> it's a studio. Anyway, yes. Sorry, I just needed to understand that. I mean, I, you know, I don't think you have to live paycheck to paycheck on four hundred thousand dollars a year in San Francisco. You could choose to send your kids to public school. You could live in a smaller house, right, et cetera. I mean, there are choices people make. But the point is, like, you know, people. But the point is, if you're a person who's living that way, you feel precarity. You're worried, like, you know, if I get, you know, I have to go on disability, what's going to happen to my family, right? Um, and my, my point is that, like, you know, and then there is also, and I think the deepest problem, and it's the, you know, fame, you know, it's, as the cliche goes, it's the original sin of the country, is the incredibly stark racial division. And, you know, we may, this is a topic for another podcast, and I'm happy to come back if you guys are willing to have me at some point where we can talk about this in, in more depth. And it was the subject of that uh, American interest piece you were referring to earlier about the end of racial liberalism, where, you know, there is, uh, you know, the woke left, if you want to call it that. Um, but the movement for black lives is one huge part of that, which is just like, you know, we're done just slowly putting up with you know, allegedly slow progress, especially since the progress that we've been hoping for is basically ground to a halt, partly because of the growing inequality and growing precarity, right? And the incarceration crisis and so on. And so the le there's, you know, part of the, let's say, racial left that is done being patient and done being incrementalist because they feel like the increments have slowed down to zero. And then there's another part of the, let's say, racial right that is committed to holding on to racial privilege. And there's no other way to put it than that. And that's going to be a real, I don't know how you square that one. I think that's a battle that has to be fought and won rather than one where there's going to be a compromise. Hmm. Nils, awesome. Shadi, any, any uh, parting thoughts? 
I don't have parting thoughts, but um, I do want to say, Nils, thanks so much for coming on. Um, it was really, this is a great conversation. I think that our listeners will agree. I would also urge, if you like this conversation, you should follow uh, Nils's work and we'll, we'll have the links. We've mentioned a few of the articles he's written. They're all, they're all great. And um, yeah, follow I hope Nils we do on have Twitter. you again. Yeah. No, Nils, we'll have you on for sure. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully... Uh, you know, once uh, once this uh, certainly once this insanity uh, eases up, we'll have you on. But that'll hopefully be the the fourth or fifth time we'll have you on uh, long distance before then. But it's always fun to do these sort of in person rather than sort of remote. Anyway, awesome. Nils, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, guys. Yep, take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.